Well, it's good to be back in the Olivet Discourse, and as you know, we are looking at the Olivet Discourse and also keeping an eye on the culture in which we live in and things going on there. And one of the things in understanding the times, we're trying to not do what a lot of Bible teachers do, is sensationalize the events, because I think it's a mistake and probably not even biblical. But uh, there are some relationships, I think, in terms of who we are today and where things are heading. But uh, we are careful to say, in fact, I gave you a lot of background on the Olivet Discourse itself. And I don't believe that there is very much in the Olivet Discourse that you could call, quote, fulfillments in the church age. I think it is dealing with, that's why we looked at Daniel, It's dealing with Daniel's 70th week, a very specific time frame in God's program. Daniel's 70th week deals with what? The 70th week of Jewish history. So I believe that the Olivet Discourse is predominantly dealing with the nation of Israel. It's the last week of Israel's history predicted in Daniel's time, 500 years before Christ, 2,500 years ago, give or take a few years there. So what we're talking about, I would not call anything in the Olivet Discourse, very little, we'll talk about what is fulfilled, but very little in the Olivet Discourse are actual fulfillments. Now, the 70th week is not just going to automatically, you know, a switch is going to go on and now everything just pops up. There may be some things leading up to that 70th week and the things that we see today may fall into that category. In other words, things leading up, but be careful, not fulfillments. And I've used Hal Lindsay's book, what was it written, 70s or so, I can't remember, But he was doing what uh, I think is a mistake. He was tying the current events of the 70s to some passage of the Olivet Discourse and other places. If you read the book today, that book is totally out of date because I think that's the mistake of it. So uh, with that caution, we'll get into the text. I've given you, in fact, we've got an extended introduction, the setting of the book, all the way back to chapter 21. And we also fit in an overview of Ezekiel, and we looked at some key passages out of Ezekiel. We looked at some key passages out of Daniel to give us kind of a foundation and the setting for the Olivet Discourse, so we better can better understand it. And particularly Daniel chapter 9 that deals with Daniel's 70th week. That particular week of years is what the Olivet Discourse predominantly deals with, at least the beginning of it until the second coming that is described in the Olivet Discourse. And just a reminder, the setting is on the Mount of Olives, which is that mount right there. Call it a mountain, it's more of a mobile. But it's one of the highest points there in the city of Jerusalem. This is looking north to the Olivet Discourse from actually David's city or Zion, essentially, and that's the Kidron Valley. The geography there is very much like New Mexico. They call this a wadi, or the Kidron, 
a wadi is nothing more than a royal. Call it an arroyo, and you got the same idea. The only time it has water, as you can see, the people on the bottom is after it rains, kind of like here. So that's the Mount of Olives. Another shot of the Mount of Olives, memorializing. They build these churches to memorialize different things. And Jesus and the disciples are on the mount, and they're looking across the Kidron, and the most prominent thing there, besides what's behind the gate, is the East Gate. And since it's right adjacent to the Mount of Olives, many Bible scholars believe that when Jesus arrives, he will enter the city through that gate. So it's plugged up right now, but it's no problem for a resurrected Christ, right? Um, does it say that when the Spirit left, the temple the gates closed, or it was something? Mm, I'm not sure, but uh, the closing was in, I think, the, the uh, Byzantine, Byzantine era, the Ottoman Empire, I think, but I, I'm not sure what... The... And I know they made a cemetery to desecrate. Yeah, so that nobody walks through there. No big deal for a resurrected Christ. <laughs> But anyway, it's believed that when he comes, now it's very clear that when he arrives, when he returns, he will set foot on the Mount of Olives, the place where the disciples are with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is giving us this discourse. And it deals with the temple behind these that entryway. So that's the setting, and I take that uh, beginning in verse 4 through 28... Of Matthew 24, this is a description of what is commonly referred to as the tribulation. In fact, Jesus uses that word. The period of seven-year tribulation. Seven years, because Daniel is specific. Daniel tells us it'll be a week of years. In verse 4, we looked at it last time, so I'll just give you a quick review of it. Verse 4 begins the first, perhaps, three and a half years. And I'll explain when we get to verse 14 why, or verse 15. And Jesus describes it, I think, in verse 8, as the beginning of birth pangs. And we discussed a little bit of that last time. We'll review a little bit of that again. Birth pangs, as you know, physically. Jenny knows she's a nurse. She's probably delivered babies. Birth pangs increase in frequency and intensity as you get closer to delivery. I mean, every woman knows this that has had a child. The analogy that uh, Jesus is using actually comes from the Old Testament that describes this period of time. It is a period of time that begins to unfold in somewhat stages. And as you get closer and closer to the delivery, if you will, or the second coming, things get more and more intense. And if you study the book of Revelation, you see that intensity. And it's somewhat alluded to also in uh, the Olivet Discourse. So then, are you saying that right. today is just the birth pangs? No, 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 no. No, I'm saying that the birth pangs are beginning in verse 4. All right? Yeah. What we're seeing is just the pre-pregnancy just throwing up or whatever. There's Braxtonian contractions that go during your pregnancy, but they're not birth pains. Right. just saying things are going to happen. They're kind of uh, fake birth pains, right? 
Okay. So the analogy here, the analogy of the end times, is not only Jesus, but Paul picks up the same analogy in 1 Thessalonians 5.3, describing this period of time. And I'm going to parallel some things that you have in the book of Revelation as we go through the Olivet Discourse, and we'll see this increase in frequency of judgments and calamity and intensity of them until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. In fact, Jesus says, has those days not been cut short, then uh, basically everyone would have been annihilated. So we're dealing on a timeline with a period of time, seven years, and again, Daniel is specific in the middle. Something happens, we'll get to that. That's verse 15. Also, the book of Revelation is very specific as well. In fact, it marks out Three and a half years, it uses some of the language of Daniel. Daniel describes a time, one time, times, which in the Hebrew is two, it's the duo in Hebrew. There are two kinds of plural in Hebrew, one of them represents two, and one of them represents two or more. It's the one that represents two, so you have a time, times, two more, and a half a time. That's what Daniel says. He also says it's in the middle, the 70th week of seven years. Book of Revelation not only uses that Daniel phrase, a time, times, and half a time, it also specifies it in specific days. And if you calculate it out, it's three and a half years, 360 days. And it also refers to it in months. So it's very specific time frame. And it appears that uh, verses 4 through 14 is describing the first three and a half years, which we are taking Jesus' words, we could describe it as the beginning of birth pangs. Does that make sense? So that's where we're at in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. So birth, beginning birth pangs, and we looked at this, we'll come back and I'll review some of it and expand it a little bit more. We only got through verse 4 last time. 4 and 5 is the deception of false false Christs, false messiahs. Now I think there's a distinction, and sometimes this is confused in some teaching and some reading of the text. He's dealing with specifically false messiahs. Now every false messiah is also a false prophet, and that's why it's confused. But not every false prophet is a false messiah. Make sense? What he's dealing with here are false messiahs. So I'd like to kind of clear, clarify a little bit what he's talking about. We did a little bit of that last time. Later on, and the reason I say this is because later on, he's going to talk about false prophets in verse 11. So there's a distinction that he's making between the two. He's dealing with false Christ. And within, you know, I've given you some background. There's a lot of different ways people interpret Bible prophecy today, and they have for the last few hundred years, I guess. And a lot of them, I think, are uh, not very good. So there's, I think there's a lot of confusion in terms of a lot of Bible prophecy. So you have to kind of keep things in order and keep things straight to understand Bible prophecy. So I'm going to make a distinction between these false Christs. Some of that will clarify some of the misunderstanding of uh, some of the 
people that, that take the passage differently. Verse 4 is a warning not to be misled. All of that is on your outline sheet, by the way. Warning not to be misled. We looked at that. Jesus answered and said to them, See to it. You could even translate this as beware. And I gave you the word study on that. See to it that no one misleads you. In other words, he's warning them. Beware. This is a warning. See to it that no one misleads you. This, there's the danger there. Now, if this is during that seven-year period of time, it has application to the disciples, but Jesus is speaking prophetically. And this is not uncommon in prophecy. In Bible prophecy, for example, when Isaiah speaks, he's speaking to an audience He's writing to a particularly Jewish audience in the Old Testament, and he writes as if he's speaking to them directly, in other words, in the second person. Jesus is doing the same thing that a lot of the prophets are doing. They're writing prophetic material. It appears that they're, he's writing to, or he's speaking to the disciples, and he is. And there would be a first century application. But, it goes beyond that first century and, in fact, deals, if you look at the details, some of the things that we'll look at today and in the following weeks, they cannot pertain to the first century. And they cannot pertain to, I think, the church age. They pertain to that period of time that the disciples would have been familiar with. They would have known Daniel chapter 9. And had they put it all together, they would have come up with the, I think, the eschatology that we have come up with here. So, the problem of being misled, that was certainly present in the first century. But, think about it. Would the disciples have fallen for a false messiah? No way. I mean, they knew the real messiah. Alright? And not only that, but very shortly, they were going to see the resurrected messiah. So they were not going to fall for these false messiahs. So it pertains to a future age where people are not so familiar. You know, they saw him, uh, they ate with him, they slept with him, they ministered, they did everything with him. They knew who the Messiah was. And when he was resurrected, they recognized him and knew that he was the resurrected Messiah. So the disciples would not be misled. But people would, in fact, be, and particularly in the future, will be misled. And if you read the book of Revelation, there's a lot of deception. And other passages like Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. So this is a warning. And on the outline sheet, I, in your margin, I've got three of them. There's actually several more as well. But the first three, we'll look at them. The, one of the purposes of prophecy is not to satisfy curiosity. Alright? It's not just to satisfy, well, what's going to happen in the future. Like uh, people do when they go to the uh, newspaper and look up their horoscope. That's not the purpose of Bible prophecy. The purpose of Bible prophecy also is not to raise a lot of money by uh, being sensational and sending out these prayer cloths or whatever. It's not the purpose. The main purpose, Jesus starts off here, it's to warn because there are dangers associated with things not only throughout history, but particularly related to prophetic events. One of the main dangers is the issue of false teaching 
And in this context, false Christs, false messiahs, false messiahs. Verse 4 is one of the verses. Would somebody read, uh, in chapter 24, read 24 and 25. Because we have, in fact, throughout the Olivet Discourse, the what Jesus is doing is warning. Who's got, you got it? Go ahead. No, read uh, 24 and 25. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets shall show great signs and wonders. Okay, they will perform miracles. Some of them, I think, will be counterfeit miracles, but demonic forces can perform, to some extent, miracles. So be warned. Keep reading. Finish. And so much that, if it were possible, they shall conceive the very elect. Okay, so these are going to be very convincing. In fact, when we get to verse 15, I'm going to give you a picture of the ultimate false Christ that will, in fact, perform spectacular uh, miracles. So miracles in themselves are not necessarily of God. False Christs can do it. Jim, do you want to read 42? Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be on the alert. It's a similar context. In other words, beware. See to it that you not be misled, like in verse 4. Okay? This is going to be a time of intense deception. Now, you might think we're living in a time of deception, and I think we are. In fact, every period in the church age, in fact, there's a lot of Bible verses that indicate that there's always lots of deception. Even in a perfect environment, Adam and Eve, Eve was deceived, is what the text tells us. So there's always the counter forces of Satan working against what God is trying to accomplish. And in the church today, there's lots of deception. Just to kind of bring it a little bit home here, here's a couple of cartoons you might enjoy there. Obama called the Constitution an outdated and deeply flawed document. Didn't he take an oath to uphold the Constitution? Well, currently you know that uh, when he speaks, he understands things very differently than we do usually, so the cartoon says he must have thought the word was hold up <laughs> the Constitution. Why are liberals so hot for gun control laws? Any fool knows that criminals don't obey laws. Well, it's because it has the word control in it. Political cartoon. Anyway, just lightly. (laughs) Okay, verse 5. Let's get into it. And this is where we'll pick up from last time. Jesus answered, said, and see to it that no one misleads you. Verse 5. There's a reason behind it. For... Many will come in my name. These are more than just false teachers. These are people that are claiming some area of messiahship. And it becomes clear that there will be many during this period of time. There will be many bringing solutions to the calamities that will be taking place during this time. There'll be many that'll be offering salvation in different forms during this period of time, this seven-year period of time. So not just one. Now, there will be one that will overshadow all the rest. We'll talk about him later. But there will be many who come in his name. In other words, claiming Messiahship. Claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah. In his name, I think, is very specific and very clear. 
So uh, don't confuse this part with false teachers. These are false messiahs. We'll talk about, when we get to verse 11, we'll talk about false teachers as well. So you can have a combination of the two during that seven-year period of time. Now, one of the things that I think introduces confusion here is the preterists. Remember, I gave you a background on them. This is becoming more and more popular in our culture, a way of interpreting not only the book of Revelation, but also the Olivet Discourse, or Matthew 24 and 25. They will say that most of what Jesus predicted was fulfilled in the first century, and they will point to what is in the first century they would call claims of messiahship. All right? And they try to put most of the fulfillment of the Olivet Discourse in the time frame right after Christ before 70 AD. And in a strange way, the, I guess the full preterists even see a fulfillment of the second coming in 70 AD. Now you say, well, how can that be? Well, they spiritualize, as most probably improper interpretation uh, has to do with the text to fit into their system. Well, the preterists will point to individuals, they would say, in the first century, Thetis was probably described perhaps in Acts 5.36. In fact, they use this passage, and they'll point to other imposters, uh, Egyptian false prophet, an Egyptian false prophet, and a man by the name of Manahem. All of these are described in uh, Josephus' works. They're not in the Bible. And they would use another biblical text as well, describing another false teacher. But none of these are truly false Christs. What they, the preterists are doing, they're mixing up. That's why I'm making a distinction here. They're mixing up false teachers with false Christs. Were there false teachers? Certainly. But there probably were not false Christs right after Jesus Christ. There were some that preceded, but not after. Make sense? So when it says, in my name, they refer to these these that I mentioned and others as well. What about during the church age? What about messianic claims? Well, I would say they are not fulfillments of Matthew 24. There have been individuals over time in the church age, but these individuals, and I would say they came in Christ's name and claimed to be even messiahs. Some examples of them. In 135, Simon bar Kokba led a revolt that was put down, but the basis of his revolt was that he claimed to be messiah. And he offered the Jews salvation from the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans squelched that and basically killed him. But this was later. This is a hundred years later. This is after 70 AD. So this is not one that the preterists would use. So we have false Christ and we have others more recent. Sun Young Moon, for example, claims to be a messiah. Khomeini claims to be a messiah for Islam and the world, basically. We have people like Jim Jones, who is a claimant of messianic uh, position. Uh, David Koresh, another one. People like that. Even Manson. So there are some claims. And these are within the church age. 
But what I would say, during the church age, you might have people that make these claims, but these are not the ones that are described by Jesus. Jesus is talking about those specifically in that period of time. I'll show you the basis for that in a moment. So we have the first century, and we have the tribulation claims of Messiahship. That's what the, the Olivet Discourse is describing. You might think I'm splitting hairs here, but I want to avoid that kind of that sensational approach that some are taking here. And not only specifically, but not only to say coming in my name, but saying, I am the Messiah. That's what Christ means. I am the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, Christos. Specifically making claims and tying themselves to Messiahship. And some of those that I mentioned, in fact, did that. Simon Karboka. So, in 1 John 2.18, I think John is saying there will be claims during the church age. Alright? And those that I've mentioned would fall under 1 John 2.18. What does 1 John 2.18 say? And remember, John is writing after 70 A.D., and he's saying that even in 70 A.D., children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, that Antichrist is coming. In other words, an Antichrist, a messianic figure that personifies in the future Satan himself. He is coming. And John anticipated in the future, obviously. But, he says, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. In other words, there are a lot of Antichrists, false claims, false messiahs. There's going to be one in particular, but there's others as well. And I think John is speaking in terms of the church age. John is speaking of something different than what Jesus is speaking. Jesus is describing the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Splitting hairs too much, you think? Okay. Just trying to be precise in our Bible interpretation. Jim? The dates vary, but most of the scholars would be after 70 AD, some as late as 90, like the book of Revelation is 95. Okay? After 70 AD. Yeah, most scholars... That's important, they're not written. Or right, because of the preterist viewpoint, exactly. So it's written when he was on top. I don't think many scholars hold to that. Yeah, it's pretty probably. Yeah, it, it's not clear because the, the it doesn't give us a lot of clues in the book itself. But it does appear to be late because it uh, appears that all of John's writings appear to be late, including the Gospel of John. Jeva, and this actually takes us too far on later. Okay. Um, you're talking about the hours and the weeks and the days and the weeks and everything in the last hour. So how do you hit that hour? Yeah, obviously on that day, 60 minutes later, the Lord didn't return. From the, from the context, what Jesus is saying in that First John passage, that's a good question, by the way. You have to read, there are a lot of little phrases, this is one of them, in the New Testament that speak Last days, here's last hour, last time. Look at the context. Look at the context. In fact, Hebrews 1, remember this about 10 years ago when we were in the book of Hebrews? 
In Hebrews 1, I'm joking, it wasn't that long, but in Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, God has revealed himself through the Son. There is a sense, and depending on the context, I think this is one of the contexts, and the book of Hebrews is one of the contexts, where in reality, the entire church age is the last days. And they expected the soon return of Messiah. They, I don't think they anticipated or expected a 2,000 year delay. Does that make sense? There are some other passages that are more specific in the context that refers what we could, what we would be able to say as the last days of the last days. <laughs> in other words, the, the end period of the church age. Now, in the minds of the first century Christians, it was all the same. But obviously, from our perspective, looking 2,000 years back, there has to be a reference to the end of the church age. And for them, the end of the church age was a matter of perhaps months, years. From our perspective, already 2,000. So some of those passages refer to the last days of the church age, which may refer to the period we're living in, if in fact we're close. Okay? Good question. That was not too far off. Okay, in the church age, now these individuals, and by the way, there have been people that have pointed to Napoleon, for example. There have been people that pointed to other prominent figures, to, to Hitler, for example, claiming that he is the Antichrist. Now I think many of these, many of them, in fact Hitler, I think he was demon-possessed. So they have a lot of characteristics in common. And by the way, these are the characteristics of Antichrist. So an individual may show those characteristics. And if they show those characteristics, some people have thought, well, maybe this is the Antichrist. But they display the characteristics because they're coming from the same source. They're satanic. And they're offering, obviously, false salvation, false hopes. And these are just from passages. Most of these are from Daniel. He'll be a very charismatic individual. In other words, he will be looked up to and thought of, this person is bigger than life. And by the way, there are some that even have attached that to Obama, but Obama, I think he's small, big player. Charismatic, very dynamic, you might say. A skilled politician, and some of those that have been identified are very skilled in their political endeavors, very successful, and I've got verses for every one of these, most of them out of Daniel, arrogant, speaks blasphemous words, for example, very deceitful, and at the heart of everything they say is deceit. In other words, there's a full range of deception in there. Very articulate, able to express, very persuasive, very articulate, can't remember the Daniel passage, how it phrases it, but basically being able to sway crowds, essentially. They're all statists. A statist is one that believes in a one-world government and that they have come and arrived to lead that government. They're statists. It's a political term. And I believe they're all demonic. They're all demonic because most, many of them perform unusual things, and some of them perform actual miracles. Now, that'll be the characteristic of the ultimate false Christ, the ultimate antichrist, if you will. But these characteristics will also be evident, perhaps throughout church age, 
based on the 1 John 2.18 passage, and specifically during the seven-year period based on the Olivet Discourse. Okay? Very healing because we want someone to lead us to explore all sorts of things. And so, I mean, that fits, you know, anyone who comes up because our hearts want that. Yes, we want that. And during a time of great turmoil and calamity, people are going to fall for the Antichrist. But I think what we have in, in Matthew's Gospel, the Olivet Discourse, is in the future during this period of time we call tribulation. A, not the, perhaps false Messiah, beware. So beware in our culture. And nation is divided. And we are a very, very, very small, tiny minority. That's Obama. Those are ears. Oh, ears. That's a caricature. Okay, so during tribulation there'll be many false messiahs. There'll be an ultimate false Christ, antichrist. I'm going to give more discussion to that when we get to verse 15. He deceives the entire nation at first because they enter into a covenant. He's going to deceive the at least the leaders. That's Daniel 9.27. That's where Daniel's 70th week is described, which would be placed at the end of the age. He brings false peace at the beginning. False peace. First Thessalonians 5, 1-3 speaks of this false peace, and it'll be as a result of that covenant, if you put these passages together. And it uh, he will rise to power, I think, is described. In fact, I see a lot of parallels with Revelation 6. Seal judgments, and I'll go back to Revelation 6 as we go through Matthew 24. And it appears the first seal judgment is this relative peace that will exist. And that'll be one of the reasons why he gains popularity. Oh, he has solved the Middle East crisis. He has a covenant with Israel. And there's a relative peace at the beginning. And that's the ultimate one. And he will appear. In fact, we will not be able to identify him, I don't think, until the seven years begin. And the one that signs the covenant, that's him. So I think it's a mistake to try to attach any politician or any person to Antichrist in the church age. I don't think we'll know. And obviously he'll claim deity and have Second Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 4. He will increase in popularity, and we'll come back to this, he will increase in popularity to the point that in the middle of the tribulation, part of the abomination that is described in Matthew and in Daniel, part of that is a claim to deity. He will be so popular that he will claim to be God himself. His popularity will rise and peak in the middle. So that's the beginning of birth pangs, or at least part of it. And then after that, there'll be what Jesus describes as great tribulation, greater than the first three and a half years. David. Verse 27 says, In the midst of a week he shall cause sacrifice and the ovation to cease. Yeah. Which would indicate to me that he's made part of the agreement possibly was to allow the Jews to... Yes. Their temple. Yes. Right. Have their office. Yes. Exactly. We'll talk some more about that. So I see 
the 6, 1 through 2 is Revelation. The first seal judgment, I think, is a picture of an Antichrist, or the Antichrist, that brings a relative peace. And I'm going to use this chart to show the parallels with some of the other things that we have in uh, Matthew chapter 24. Okay, dangers today, things... There are false systems of faith. In other words, people offering salvation apart from what the Bible teaches, apart from salvation by grace, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. There's lots of religious people that are offering a false gospel. In a way, you might describe them as false messiahs because they're offering salvation in a way that the Bible, contradicting what the Bible teaches. And you're not susceptible to that because you believe the true gospel. But we need to warn others that are in these systems. This is how we can apply this passage to our culture today. Warning those that are under a false system. And not just cults. I'm talking about some churches are presenting a false gospel. A gospel of works. A gospel of works is contrary to what the Bible teaches. Salvation is a free gift received by faith alone. And if it omits that, that's a false system. And there's lots of them in our culture. There'll be even more of them during that seven-year period of time. There are false political claims. In fact, we are susceptible to that in an election year, thinking that the problems can be solved politically. The problems in our culture are not going to be solved politically. There might be some temporary solutions, there might be some relief, there might be some little things that happen, but ultimately what we need in our country is revival of masses of people coming to know Jesus Christ. And that's what we need to work towards. Now, I know that there are some Christians that are called into the political realm, and God can bless them in that if that's their calling, but... God is not going to solve issues or problems politically. He's going to solve them first individually, spiritually, and then in a broad basis. So we're in an election year. Beware of promises that uh, solve our problems. False scientific hopes. This is global warming right now, radical environmentalism. Uh, the whole emphasis is what? We have to what? The planet? Save the planet. In a way, it's kind of a false messianic claim on a physical basis. Now, this is the scary one. What Islam is working towards today, particularly ISIS and particularly Iran, is they are preparing the way for what they call the Mahdi. He is the Islam Messiah. And everything that they are doing is working in that direction to bring about, in their thinking, an Islamic world when Mahdi comes. And it's going to take turmoil, they say. So they have very, very high motivation. So radical Islam is a, a problem and it's, it's an issue that uh, most of us in the U.S. are not prepared to face what they can unleash because of this high motivation. They're like kamikaze pilots during World War II. In fact, they strap bombs on themselves because their hope is to basically reach the Islamic 
quote, heaven, if you will, and the sure way is by martyrdom. But Iran and ISIS are working towards bringing in the Mahdi. So a lot of what they're doing is motivated in that direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they have the same motivation, so they have the same intensity, and they have the same drive that drives them to martyrdom, essentially. Connie? They're the same. Yeah. The Is it the 12th, I think? Yeah. Yeah, it's the same. So, that's the deception of false Christs. It's probably a good place to wrap up then. So we got through verse 5 today. Messiah, yes. Yes. He's the, he's the Islamic Messiah. We'll talk some more about that. Yeah, the, the question is, who is the Antichrist? And there are three, poss- or three views, three possibilities. One of them is that he might be an Islamic person. There's another view that he is Jewish. And I think the best view is that he's Gentile, not Islamic. And we'll talk some more about that in verse 15 when we come back to it. All right? So what we will do when we come back, we'll look at 6 through 8 next week. Destruction of disasters. So there's going to be physical disasters that take place during this period of time. We have false Christs. We're going to have... So you have spiritual things going on, and you also have material things going on. It's going to be a terrible time. We haven't even gotten into most of it. And you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. And again, I'll warn you, yes, there's wars and rumors of wars today, but they're not the ones that Jesus is describing. They may be leading up, and in fact, there's always been wars and rumors of wars. Who wants to close this? Mary Lee's our faithful prayer. Father, thank you that you do not leave us ignorant of your cause. Thank you that you have already given us your word to encourage us, to steady us, to show us what we must be about while we wait for the Master to return. Father, I do pray that each one of us will be good and faithful servants, that we will not be uh, wasting our time in debauchery of any sort of wasting the time that we will be faithful so that when you return, you will say good and faithful into the joy of your master. And we thank you that you do know what we should do and we trust you to take care of what you are doing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.